This is the Lunduke Journal podcast for September. What's the date today? September 4th in the year of our Lord, 2022. Today, as with every Sunday, we do Linux, alternative OS, and retro computing news. The important news, the happy news, the news that matters. Uh, Today, we're going to start off with, uh, it's actually, it's not so much a piece of news, but a rather interesting article that got posted that I honestly think everyone should take a few moments to, to go read. I, I'm linked to it over on the, the article version at lunduke.substack.com. Link to it over there. Uh, it's from a, a guy named Andre Stoltz. He put this together, a, a set of data, and it's not a huge amount of data. It's, I don't know, maybe 25, 30 or so data points of proprietary pieces of software, operating systems, online services, desktop apps, that sort of thing that then had viable open source alternatives, like popular ones, you know, ones that that really got used, but alternatives to them released later on. And he charted the dates, the exact day that each were created. So uh, like, uh, for example, the very first one in the list is Unix, just in general. And it was published back in 1973. And then he says, okay, well, there was an open source alternative, Linux, which was published in September of 1991. And he says, well, that though the, the, the delta there was 6,550 days, right? <laughs> so he goes through a whole bunch of things like that and charts it out and shows the general number of days between a proprietary solution being created and an open source alternative being released and charts it over time. And he created a, basically this nice little dotted graph that shows that over time, the, the, the later things get in years, the more modern things get, the quicker it is that we get an open source alternative. And if you look at it, it, it really does hold true. Uh, the the early stuff, uh, Unix, AutoCAD, MATLAB, uh, Adobe Illustrator, Adobe Photoshop, Microsoft Office, and whatnot, they all had the that delta, that, that uh, what, what, what was it? Um, hold on, let me get the exact acronym. Time till open source alternative, the TTOSA, was measured in thousands of days. But then modern stuff, uh, you know, like uh, Slack and uh, Apple Siri and and the Google Authenticator and Sketch and all these other things and Dropbox, much smaller number of days. And and in the article, he kind of attributes that to a variety of things, uh, the proliferation of the web, open source culture, GitHub, blah, 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 blah. There's a, there's a whole lot of reasons for it. But overall, it is kind of an interesting thing to see that, that as we go along, proprietary solutions are getting, for lack of a better word, cloned and create an alternative open source versions are created faster and faster and it's just accelerating now some of his data points are a little funky like for example he takes uh unix and says that the open source alternative was linux well i mean we had open source alternatives prior to that i mean minix uh, that existed beforehand and was viable and in use um not yeah yeah and there are so most of the data points are okay 
Uh, some of them I take I take some squabbles with, but overall the data trend is obvious. It would be interesting though to not just clean up the data a little bit and make it a little more accurate, though it's it's accurate enough to see a trend, but to also add some additional data points in there because there, there's there's a good number and it clearly shows a trend, but it would be nice to get more data points. You know, show things like Amiga OS and how long until there was the Amiga Research operating system or Morphos or things like that. Show, uh, you know, Microsoft Windows and how long until we got React. Uh, show BOS and how long until we got a viable, fully open source haiku. Things like that. You know, there, there's so many proprietary operating systems and, and platforms. It would be interesting to, to get more of that data in there. Um, it might be worth doing at some point just to just to really look at the data. Uh, and I'm wondering how much more information we can we can glean from this as well. But it's, it's a fascinating set of data. It's an interesting article. Um, I highly recommend reading it. It's it's fun to think about that. It's fun to think how much how, how much faster can this continue? Right. How how much more speed can we achieve in cloning open source versions of those proprietary applications like how fast can we get because i mean shoot you know you look at the the later part of his list and stuff that was created like in 2019 and whatnot had were, were literally cloned in the matter of 200 300 900 it's 700 etc days and that it, that's that's amazing to me you know that's i mean it it makes sense it does make sense considering the way things have gone and considering, honestly, the fact that the open source world has a lot of practice cloning things. I mean, I love open source and free software, but let's be honest, most of what happens in the open source and free software world is cloning something that was proprietary. And that's kind of a, a truth I've had to come to terms with a bit. Uh, there is some legitimately fascinating and interesting groundbreaking research that happens in the open source world, both in terms of user interfaces, um, uh, actual actual tools that get created, networking, all sorts of things do legitimately get pushed forward. But the majority is, um, you know, create a library and framework to emulate X, create a library and framework or applications to work with this set of data that comes from a proprietary system, uh, create and clone and create compatibility with an existing proprietary system. I mean, heck, the major, I mean, all of GNU, GNU exists purely to be a re-implementation of Unix, purely. I mean, if you read Stallman's original manifestos, that was the whole point is to take that proprietary stuff and make free software versions of it. The whole point is to clone, right? Like, like that was Richard Stallman's entire intent. And realistically, that's kind of what Linus was doing, too. Uh, that's what Tannenbaum was doing, too, for the most part, though Minix did have some some other things added into it and, and tweaked and changed. But realistically, most of GNOME and KDE were taking significant cues from Unix desktops of the day, Windows, Mac OS, and the like, and, and cloning much of it. They just they just were. That doesn't mean they didn't put their own spin on it, but I, we kind of have to take, we have to be realistic in that that's what open source does. And so it, it, 
it makes sense that we've gotten better and faster <laughs> at it over time. Uh, it really does. It's gotten it's gotten fast, and we've gone from you know uh, closing in on ten thousand days for some of those earlier projects to hundreds of days for some of the newer ones. It, it's kind of amazing. All right, moving on, moving on. I want to talk a little bit about Better Bird. This is interesting. This uh, uh, Gabe, Gabe from the Lunduk Journal community over at lunduk.locals.com uh, posted about this. Totally was not on my radar. And it is a fascinating project. So Thunderbird email. Mozilla Thunderbird has been a de facto email client since the early 2000s. I've been using it personally as my primary email client for the better portion of that time, for over a decade. I don't use it much nowadays because it's had so many issues and I have, I have so many uh, concerns and qualms with the business practices of Mozilla that I've kind of, I've kind of distanced myself from it and kind of pulled myself away from it. But I, I really heavily relied on it for at least a decade. Now, that that hasn't been without its pain points, though. And this is where Better Bird has come in. And I'm going to read this from the project description and uh, just kind of keep an open mind uh, and listen to what they're what they're talking about here. Quote, Better Bird is a fine tuned, fine tuned version of Mozilla Thunderbird. Thunderbird on steroids, if you will. Better Bird is better than Thunderbird in three ways. It contains new features exclusive to Betterbird. It contains bug fixes exclusive to Betterbird. And it contains fixes that Thunderbird may ship at a later stage. Okay, interesting. So I feel like we need to go into this a little bit deeper. So I, I'm going to also quote a, another portion of it that I feel like drives the point that they're trying to make home. Quote, <laughs> I love you. I love saying the word quote, quote. I, I really enjoy it. I, and just so you guys know, whenever I say quote, there are the quote fingers in the air, the little bunny fingers. I, I do that every time. Quote, based on the current situation in version 102 of Thunderbird, a look at quality assurance or lack thereof is appropriate. Thunderbird has never had an organized quality assurance team. They let the product ripen at the customer site, at worst causing data loss like for version 102. The 102 release with MBOX and MSF corruption causing data loss and deleted MSF files was nothing short of disastrous. Okay. They're not wrong about that. So for anyone who's used Thunderbird for any length of time, there have been many, many releases of Thunderbird that have caused a significant amount of data corruption and data loss for me personally. Um, I've still used it because it is Thunderbird is a quality email suite, right? It does a whole lot more than email it does, you know, Usenet news groups and also and RSS feeds and all sorts of things, which makes it a really, really handy application. It is a, it is not a bad piece of software. It is, however, a very buggy piece of software, right? If you, if you don't do too much to Thunderbird, it works pretty well. 
if you really, really use it, if you have a lot of data in it and you use a lot of the features and you mix and match the features, you will hit bugs and you will lose data. That has become a... People who have used Thunderbird for more than, you know, five plus years just come to accept that. And it is absolutely, absolutely true that the that the Thunderbird team has not put an emphasis on testing and quality and quality assurance. That's 100% true. 100% true. That does not mean it's bad, but it does mean that that is a problem. And so if you're relying on Thunderbird, which if you're using it that heavily, you are relying on it, whether it's your personal data or business data, that can be a problem. So along comes the, the team that puts out Better Bird. And they just released this last week uh, their latest version, version 91.13.0, which is just not, the, the whole version numbering scheme of modern web browsers and email clients, Firefox, Chrome, Mozilla, Thunderbird, all of it is absolutely ridiculous. The numbers are so huge and there's like several point, point dot, you know, 875.h28. Point three seven five zero point dash one. It's like no, no, no. That's not a good. A ver- you know what a good version number is? One point two. <laughs> That's a version number. Three one one. <laughs> That's a version number. Version number seven point zero. Version number. Um, I come on. You, you simplified a little bit. Anyway, so the this team at Betterbird, um. They release it, and what they release is essentially Thunderbird with some fixes. But what what I find interesting is they they put together a chart, and I'm going to read a little bit of the chart to you now, so you can kind of see where they're coming from. Part of the chart, and I'm not going to read this part of the chart, is a list of bug fixes that are, in some cases, significant data loss bug fixes that are not fixed in Thunderbird. Now, those fixes are available to Thunderbird. Betterbird's open source. And, and those those fixes are available. Thunderbird just hasn't included or tested or made their own fixes of them. And so what, what the Betterbird team seems to be trying to do is to show, hey, hey, look at this. If, if you're worried about this specific stuff, these issues, these specific bugs, if those concern you, Use Betterbird. But they also have a list of features. And and while their primary focus is really that they have a lot of bug fixes that hopefully will make it so you lose a lot less data, um, they also have some significant fixes. Um, multi-line view, like an Outlook, Lotus Notes, and Postbox. Uh, can customize the header pane buttons, complex search terms, quick filter untagged messages, permanently decrypt messages, which is actually kind of handy. You in, in Thunderbird that is a problem sometimes. Global search and encrypted messages also handy. Quick filter search and encrypted messages, um, assist tray icon for Windows. Um, which gives just a lot more functionality in Betterbird. Uh, notification of new messages and news groups, other improvements for news groups, lots of them, including open message by ID, no phantom unread messages. Um, yeah, the use the Usenet news group support in Thunderbird is buggy as heck. 
uh, to, to put it mildly. And so in Better Bird, they fix some things. Uh, configurable display of addresses in message list, printed attachment list, um, uh, startup folders that fixes, um, file attachment fixes, meaning you they have a, a list of recent file attachments. So if you have files that you regularly attach, you know, um, you know, keys and pictures and, and whatnot to your emails, you just have you have a, 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 a list of them ready to go. Um, and activity managers that o- open in a tab instead of standalone windows and some other stuff as well. Now, some of that is not um, groundbreaking. And some of that is not necessary, but a lot of it is actually pretty nice. It's it's quality of life improvements over the existing Thunderbird. So, so what I'm curious is, I'm cu- really, really genuinely curious is if anyone has been trying out uh, Betterbird because um, I, I've installed it now. I have not used it a bunch yet. I've just installed it to take a quick peek around. Um, I haven't brought over my old Thunderbird M box yet. But I, I plan to do that sometime this week to really see how well it goes. Because, man, if it fixes some of the problems I have with Thunderbird, I could go back to using Thunderbird in the form of Betterbird. And and if that is the case, if all these fixes are really in place, what the heck is the Thunderbird team doing just ignoring this? Um, this doesn't seem like something that can be ignored. I, now, um, it, what's what, one of the persons that handles some of the the Thunderbird project management um, is uh, is a is a guy who I've known for for many years used to be a, was a fan of mine and then we uh, then we met um, back when uh, he worked at system 76 and I went to one of their events and uh, so and we hung out a little bit really genuinely nice guy extremely smart guy extremely smart um, so I I would be very surprised if he hasn't thought long and hard about how to handle this because realistically, based on the experiences I've had with Thunderbird in the past, the concerns that I and a lot of other people have with Mozilla about data security and data privacy, because Mozilla has been partnering up with every data mining firm they can, um, Mozilla's been, you know, been injecting extensions and plugins into into people's browsers without without even informing them in order to advertise for television shows. I mean, this sort of it's just it's just really weird, weird. And the fact that Mozilla kind of comes out and regularly states that they are a political organization and they want certain people to not be on the web it's weird. I, I, I just, I don't, I don't like my, my tech companies acting that way. You know what I mean? Thunderbird being part of Mozilla makes me question the, the privacy that my data will have, the security that my, my data will have inside Thunderbird, because I, I don't trust Mozilla. I just don't. Uh, They've proven themselves to be incredibly untrustworthy over the last several years, Uh, over and over again. So much so that like I've made fun of them, poked, poked at them. And they've 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 yelled at me about me poking at them and then gone on to do even worse things (laughs) like over and over again. It's it's absolutely asinine. And uh, but now if there's a if there's a project I can use that takes the best of Thunderbird and fixes it, 
<laughs> yeah, I'm going to use that. Better bird. All right. Uh, you know, but on the other hand, if you're Thunderbird, if you're the Thunderbird team, you're going to look at this and go say, well, yeah, let's take a couple days with some of our engineering team and evaluate all of these patches and start pulling them in. Add features. Because, I mean, honestly, the list of enhancements and bug fixes in, in the current release of Better Bird is light years more interesting, impressive, and important than any of the fixes or new feature additions or user interface tweaks that I've seen from Thunderbird in years. So incorporate this. Hell, hire this hire this guy. I don't know if it's one guy or a bunch of people. Hire the whole Better Bird team if you can. And, and do exactly what they're saying. Make a focus on quality. You can't have something that you base all of your communications on, all your email and calendaring and everything else, you can't have it not be heavily tested. That's just not going to fly. Anyway, uh, it's worth looking at. It's an interesting project. Uh, thank you. Thank you much, Gabe, for bringing this one to my attention because it's, it's just fascinating. Um, oh, oh, this one. This one's great. Quick. This is a quick side note. I'm a big fan of app images. App images are ISO files, right? It's an ISO image, just like a CD-ROM image or a flash drive image. It's an ISO. But inside of the ISO is the executable application itself. Um, it's icon, inform, text information about it, so it's name, the category of application is in, along with all of its requirements, so all of its fundamental libraries and whatnot that normally on a Linux system are shared, right? You normally have external dependencies that you have to, uh, you know, install through your various repositories, which can lead to a dependency hell scenario really easily, uh, especially if you're installing older software that relies on, and this one seems to come up all the time, different versions of Python, right? <laughs> I mean, it's it happens so often. If you if you try out Linux software regularly, it's almost inescapable that you hit a scenario where you need a different version of Python than what you have installed, and then something gets broken, and it all goes to heck in a handbasket. Um, app images kind of fix all that because you can include so many of your dependencies, at least at least for the most part, within the ISO itself, making the vast majority of software run on modern Linux distributions without mucking around with what's actually installed in your Linux distro. For example, uh, the guy that that came up with AppImage, at one point I was I was bemoaning how I really wanted to use some of the early web browsers like NCSA Mosaic, uh, early builds of Netscape, because you, you can get all that stuff for Linux in those early days, right? Or just, or just the early versions of Firefox. Like, what if you want to run Firefox version one? Well, you can't. You can't really do it on a modern Linux distro. But with an app image, it actually runs great. Yeah, you can you can bundle it all up and you can run those old web browsers just fine in an app image. It, it's very very convenient. Um. So, but the problem with app images is you got to create them. You're right. Someone has to take the time and bundle together all of the dependencies and the applications and get it all set up right and test it out. And it, 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 it's not the hardest thing in the world to do, but it takes time. 
And so there's been a couple of tools that have been made to help make that process easier. I've covered some of them in the past, but none of them automate it. None of them just make it magically happen, like automagic, right? Well, now someone came up with a Python script. Yeah, speaking of Python, a Python script called Arch to App Image. And it is exactly what you think it is. It can pull a package from the Arch user repository, the AUR, and just magically spit out an app image. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, I'm I have I, I'm gonna play around with this some more this week, um, but <laughs> this might make it so that I actually have an Arch installation. Like I never I never have an Arch installation that stays an Arch installation. Like Arch for me and the various Arch derivatives, I tend to install them, play with them for a week, and then they get blown away and I, I, I install something else, right? Or I put them in a virtual machine that I never open again. Uh, and it's not, it's not for disliking Arch. It's just, I just, I just never do. But if I can do this to create app images, well, shoot, it might almost be worth my while because there's so much in the AUR. The Arch user repository is just filled with stuff. It is, it's impressive. So it might be worthwhile just to have a virtual machine of Arch and this installed just to hop into and generate app images, copy them off and then have them everywhere. Handy really, really handy. Uh, so anyway, I just wanted to point that out. Uh, there's, again, there's links to all that stuff. If you go to the article version of the show over at lunduke.substack.com. All right. Let's talk about Serenity OS briefly, but we're not going to talk about the operating system. So the, the Serenity OS project we've talked in the past, it's impressive, right? They're creating a brand new operating system, totally from scratch and to go along with it they have a new language and compiler they built their own html and javascript engine and web browsers from scratch with no libraries to help them out like it like i mean the, the stuff they're doing it's impressive and their their interface is very much inspired by that mid to late 90s look and feel very very heavily taken from that windows 95 through windows 2000 general look right i mean honestly the serenity team has done a great job with it it just it looks it looks very crisp and clean um but but what if what if you need in your serenity os based application to use emojis well, if you just go out and grab the standard UTF-8 set of emojis, which is, I think, 1,853 emojis. Jeez, that's a lot of emojis. Um, the look of them, the general design of them, it kind of doesn't fit with Serenity. It doesn't have that you know, mid to late 1990s aesthetic. It just doesn't. It, it looks like something out of the year 2006. You know what I mean? When, you know, it's got that, it's got that look, right? Like Apple would have shipped it on an early iPhone kind of look. Well, Serenity team put up a website called emoji.serenityos.net. And if you go there, it loads a giant grid of 1,853, every single emoji, right? And it loads all of them. 
and in in like this pink color, this pink background, but are behind the ones in the grid that are original and haven't been updated yet. And the green ones are the ones that have been uh, with the green background are a more pixelated late 1990s, mid 90s to late 90s style of that emoji, like lower resolution more pixel art in style uh it fits better in a 1990s looking system and and so they've done so far 772 of them i know that means they've still got over a thousand to go but holy heavens so uh when this was originally posted uh over to uh lunduke.sub or sorry lunduke.locals.com there was like 400 of them and that they'd created and changed over into these pixel art, older style looking emojis. And I looked at it and I'm like, oh, that's cool. And I, I made a little note of it. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to put that in the weekly news. That's kind of cool. Two days later, I pull it up and they're up to 772. They've done 300 of these emojis in like two days. It's insane how fast they're going. And they've got a, a graph where you can follow how close they are to achieving 100% of all of the standard emoji set. Because why not? <coughs> right? I mean, why not? I, I mean, this is not an important thing. But it is an important thing. Do you know what I mean? It's one of those things where it's not the core OS. It's not a core application. And arguably, you don't even need stupid emojis, right? But on the other hand, if everyone and their dog are using emojis, Twitter is using emojis, and, and, and messaging apps are using emojis, and everyone's got an emoji, right? Well, it, it, it'd be nice to be able to support them. So they're going to show up in your applications one way or another eventually. Do you want them to look out of place or do you want them to fit? with the overall vibe and aesthetic of the operating system you're building. And, and I think and for that reason, it's both frivolous and goofy and valuable. It's cool. I like this attention to detail. I like this attention to the frivolousness. The whimsicalness is important. Because, and here's the thing, whimsy is critical to an operating system, which I know runs contrary to, to a lot of different thoughts, but I think a certain level of just pure, whimsical, joyous frivolity really adds a lot to the day-to-day -day joy you derive from a system. And there, you can think of systems where they're like, wow, that is one darn whimsical system. And, and there's a joyousness to it. And there's a little bit of just unnecessariness, <laughs> for lack of a better word, to it. You know what I mean? And this, to me, is is just a great example of that. I love where the Serenity OS team is going. I love their, their software quality has been fantastic. It's been improving steadily. I, you know, and I'm not alone in, in making this observation. At, for a, from a desktop operating system standpoint, uh, Serenity OS is heading in a direction and at a velocity and at a quality level that it makes you stand back and say, whoa, number one, where did that come from? And number two, 
how fast is it going? Is it going to get to a point of pure, consistent day-to-day -day usability before we even know it? This is amazing. It is just amazing. And then they come out and they're like, you know what, by the way, we're remade all the emojis. Nice little open source emoji package for everybody, pixel art style. And just like with so many of the other things from Serenity OS, like the HTML and JavaScript engine that we saw packaged up and released for Linux and, 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 and Haiku even in the form of the Ladybird web browser, I, I'm sure we will see people grab this emoji package from Serenity OS and start including it in open source packages for Linux and BSDs and, and other operating systems. It's amazing. Amazing. So kudos to the, the Serenity team and, and keep, keep rocking out. All right. That's, that's the whole news for this week. That's the whole news. Those, those were the news stories that I found legitimately interesting and or brightened my whole gosh darn day. <laughs> I hope, I hope they did for you as well. And I hope you got to do something awesome this week because you deserve it. I hope you had a great weekend rocking out, playing with your friends and your family, your your whoever, whoever you're hanging out with. I hope you got a, had a great time doing it. And I hope you got to install some weird operating system on something it, that was never intended to run it because there is no greater joy in life. Um, okay, there might be a few greater joys, but that's a really good one. Uh, and I want to thank everybody for the support uh, for making the Lunduke Journal possible. Lunduke.substack.com, Lunduke.local. Com. I truly could not do any of this without you. Um, to, to all of you who have grabbed on to the, the founding member and, and lifetime subscriptions, thank you uh, sincerely from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for the support. Thank you for the encouragement. And thank you for the faith and looking at my, my back catalog and looking at the work that I do and saying, you know what, I'm going to invest into this uh, for the future. It, it it means a tremendous amount, not just from the point of view of keeping the lights on here at the Lunduke Journal, um, which you guys absolutely do, but from a, a personal standpoint, just from it feels good. It feels really good to know that the work that I'm doing is bringing some joy, bringing some knowledge into all of your lives. Uh, so thank you. Uh, thank you for for sharing that with me. And thank you for making all of this possible. Uh, I love all of you. You're fantastic. Go forth. Have a great, great day. And I will see you all a little bit later.